0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I went to my high school reunion not that long ago, and I had kind of a weird experience beyond the fact that I was at my high school reunion, which itself was a weird experience. But when we all grabbed sandwiches and cookies and sat down to eat lunch, I am pretty sure we organized ourselves in exactly the same way that we had in high school. I noticed it in that moment, and I didn't think too much about it afterwards but if that had happened when I was in high school and someone didn't choose to sit with me, that would have stuck in my head. What I didn't know then is that the teenage brain works a lot differently from the adult brain, which is probably why I haven't been analyzing that lunge situation for the past few months. A whole bunch of recent science has shown that we don't just deal with slates differently as teenagers, but also with sleep differently, marijuana, alcohol. Frances Jensen has written about these differences in the teenage brain. She's also the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Jensen, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. It's great to have a chance to talk.
0: So in your lab uh, now, you focus on very small children, right, primarily babies. And I wonder how the teenage brain became something that you were really interested in thinking about.
1: Yes. Uh, So I I do do a lot of work in the lab on epilepsy Mm -hmm. and uh, why epilepsy happens as a disease. But then um, through another set of experiences as being a parent of (laughs) uh, two teenage sons, um, I recognized wow, there are a lot of dynamic, dramatic, and rather drastic changes that are clearly happening later in the development of the brain. Uh, And in order to sort of try to understand what was going on in my own house, the experiment that nature was unfolding for me, (laughs) I felt that I wanted to look into the literature. And it really is an area that has been uh, largely un- uncovered until probably the last 10 years, I would say. Um, but the teenage brain had been thought to be just an adult brain with fewer miles on it. And mm. what I was recognizing in my experience as a parent and as a neuroscientist and neurologist, that that, you know, clearly did not, I did not buy that. Um, there was clearly something different going on. And and so I ended up doing a lot of research into the literature and, and finding things that normally would have probably been taken years to get out of this, the, the, Ivory tower of you know academia into the public's hands, and right. it answered a lot of questions for me as to what I was seeing, and helped. I think it helped me become a better parent. Um, you'd have to ask my sons for uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> validation of that. But um, I started to give like Team Brain One Hundred and One talks and things, and one thing led to another, and then it became clear I probably should put this into a book because the information seemed to be very. Uh, useful to people about the unique strengths, the possibly untapped potential of the the adolescent and teenage and also young adult brain, Um, and then also their vulnerabilities that we don't recognize. And both of these things help debunk myths that are out there about the teenage brain, which I think cause them to sometimes be misfits in society or in families and the source of kind of a lot of negative energy. So... When is the brain? You said, you know, the brain is building throughout childhood
0: and adolescence. When would you say, okay, that person's brain, it's pretty much
1: done. You know, it pretty much is what it's going to be. I would say that's, you know, there's some gender differences with males being probably a couple of years behind for any age, you know, than females. So females will get to the final point a couple of years earlier than than males. So actually the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late twenties. It's, it's there and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it, you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. So teenage adolescent time is when, is a time when you don't have full access of your frontal lobe, but unfortunately, well, fortunately, or unfortunately, you've got full access of your emotional areas of your brain. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. You don't have it. And so this is a a relative weakness they have, but it also is what builds them to be novelty seeking, right? nature probably made it that way. So that's that helps explain we've I've used this analogy before just to just to close out on this is that people often say a teenage brain is like a Ferrari uh, because of their fast synapses with weak breaks because of the lack of connection.
0: So I want to talk about uh, addiction and the teenage brain. Do you think a 15 year old is more likely to get addicted to something than a 35 year old? Or are they just more likely to try something than a 35-year-old?
1: Oh, that is a great question. Question and I will say it's both. So it turns out, um, and this is a fact that we're trying to really get out there into the mainstream. When you learn something through practice, repeated, you're repeatedly using a pathway to, in your brain to do whatever—a tennis, you know, swing or learn a vocabulary lesson. And the more you use it, the stronger that the synapse, the bigger the synapse is going to be. The synapse is in that pathway. So, and and this is called plasticity. This is meaning. It's plastic, it's moldable by experience and use. So it's, it's happening, the more you use it, the stronger uh, a pathway gets. And in fact, that's memory, right? I mean, that's how we build skills and that's how we keep memories. Uh, and interestingly, that process called plasticity at the synapse, it turns out that addiction is simply another form of learning. It's just happening in a different part of your brain, the addiction circuits, the reward systems. So repeated exposure to a drug the brain is adapting. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be responding to that all the time, so I'm going to build a bigger signal for that. And it it turns out the synapses are being built in the "I wanted, I wanted, I wanted" circuit. Um, so, and that's what addiction is. So, teenagers actually can more powerfully and more rapidly build synapses in any circuit than adults later in life. Hence. There's nothing different except it happens to be the reward system and the areas of the brain that actually control addiction are unfortunately morphing too efficiently to that drug and hence teenagers can be de- can be addicted faster, harder, longer, stronger than adults and and rehab centers are seeing this. Let me
0: ask you about uh, two drugs or two substances that, I think many teenagers don't think are, are very addictive, um, alcohol and marijuana, right? Not hard drugs, uh, but do they have the same kinds of effects or are they very different from what you've just described in terms of teenagers falling a lot harder for them maybe than somebody 20 years older?
1: Uh, yes, so their brain is changing. Normal brains are still changing every day during this window. So alcohol, um, not only can alcohol definitely gets into that addiction circuit and people can get addicted faster, the everyday use of alcohol, so most drugs work at synapses. And I've just told you that teenagers have more synapses than adults. So they are going to actually be feeling a greater effect for a given amount of alcohol than an adult. It's gonna be affecting more real estate in the teenage brain than in the adult. And it turns out that binge drinking, for instance, can actually derail some of your brain development. And um, because it is having such a more powerful effect. And that's why people, there's a lot of conversation about the problem with binge drinking because it's such a a potent, um, you know, has such a potent effect on the teenage brain.
0: Are you saying that, like, it changes your ability to learn? It changes your IQ? I mean, can it be that powerful?
1: Well, um, indeed, uh, that's exactly what's seen. So just moving over to cannabis, to marijuana, that is actually what has recent reports have been showing for the last five, maybe six years now, multiple reports coming out of human and animal experiments and and human observation, is that repeated exposure to cannabis repeatedly, and I'm saying chronic daily exposure, which is something that becomes more of even more concern as it has become, it is legalized for recreational use in many states, so it's just around more, even though it's not legal for somebody under 21, mm-hmm. it's still in around and probably easily accessible. So we worry about chronic daily exposure for this, exactly the reason I was talking about, you're changing the brain on a daily basis. And it turns out that this powerful effect of the teenage brain being able to learn more, a lot of literature is now showing that IQ can change in your teen years, which mm-hmm. is a, it's an amazing fact that people didn't recognize, um, which is wonderful because that means you can actually increase your IQ. But it also means that you can decrease your IQ because it's actually a function of how your synapses are being built. And it turns out cannabis appears to, when it's a chronic daily exposure in this one window in life, compared to a similar exposure later in life, it will actually drop your IQ. It decreases your verbal IQ actually more than anything, lifelong, permanently. And that has been shown in numerous studies.
0: So so now you're talking about using marijuana like every day. I wonder if there have been studies done um, that look at more periodic use because I would Mm -hmm. guess that a lot of teenagers fall on that side of the line where once a week or a few times a month they're they're using pot, not not like every day.
1: Right. So what we've learned about that is obviously everybody knows that pot has an effect on your brain. We wouldn't be taking it if there wasn't some effect. People perceive... uh, That it decreases their anxiety level, but it also can affect memory and sort of level of alertness, you know, depending upon how much you've smoked. Um, It turns out that when we look at like how um, learning works, how we build new synapses or or strengthen synapses that are already there as we use them, it turns out that cannabis on episodic basis, it's going to be affecting the way you remember something when Mm -hmm. you are Under the influence, we see that um, uh, levels of cannabis stay higher in the teenage brain, and in animal experiments have shown this as well, um, when it might be out of your system, but it's hanging around impairing future learning for up to three to four days following an episode of getting high.
0: I'm Kara Miller, you're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Francis Jensen, a professor of neurology and the chair of the department at University of Pennsylvania. She's also author of The Teenage Brain. I wonder when you were looking into the literature about teenagers and how their brains work, and you know you were raising teenagers yourself. What were other things that really surprised you, and you didn't realize in in thinking about how brains work in
1: that uh, period of time when when kids are sort of just coming into their own? Sure. Uh, well, a couple of things. One is is trying to explain their rather. Um odd sleep habits (laughs) and it turns out that there's definitely neurobiology to explain why their sleep cycle is not like it will be later when they're adults and it turns out that uh, there's biology behind why they're they seem to be falling asleep several hours later than adults we all put out something called melatonin which kind of kickstarts the process of going to sleep in our brains. And um, that in adults, it's usually coming out probably 8.45 or 9 o'clock in the evening. Well, um, nature has built their brains uh, such that in this developmental window, they don't release it till two or three hours later. So they're going to sleep more like midnight. And then they need their full night's sleep. So to get their nine plus hours of sleep, that takes them way past 6 or 7 a.m. And that's an issue, obviously, because we have a lot of sleep-deprived, you know, adolescents around. Well, it is tricky. I I just have to say it's tricky because we've constructed our school days so that a lot of kids
0: have to be at school at 8, sometimes earlier, if, you know, sometimes there'll be like an early band practice or an early swim practice or that kind of thing. I mean, you know, kids
1: are getting up at the crack of dawn very often. I know. And that's one of the things that, you know, again, uh, the neuroscience would suggest, you know, we need to accommodate for this in some way. We obviously can't change society and make society start at 11 in the morning because just the workday, it doesn't work that way. And you're not going to be able to shift all of society. But what we can think about, one way I've often explained it is because of this going to bed a lot later, when you wake a kid up at six or seven in the morning yeah. to get on a bus, that's like waking an adult up at 3 a.m. Right, that's the same place in mm-hmm. the sleep process. And would you like to be, you know, hauled into work at that point? I would you wouldn't not. Really, right, <laughs> it wouldn't be a great feeling. And so we risk a chronic sleep deprivation. And B, we may want to think about what can the brain actually do when it's really trying hard to sort of wake itself up. Maybe that's not the time to start the SATs. You know, yeah. at, at seven, at eight o'clock in the morning. Maybe where we should postpone them until you know starting a little later in the morning. And actually, interestingly, this has been a lot of school districts who've now been made aware of this kind of science have actually modified their um, day. Maybe start with a study hall, start with maybe a athletic part of the day or more often something that isn't a rigorous exam and then postpone when they have exams at the end of the, you know, season, do them later in the day. And I think kids really appreciate that. In fact, when you think about colleges, because, again, I just pointed out that your brain is not – you're only 18 when you're entering college and you're only 22 generally when you're leaving college or or thereabouts – this process isn't done yet and you think about how popular all the evening courses and seminars are in the late mornings that really uh, the it, the college environment is greatly adapted to this part of you know to this aspect of biology
0: yeah yeah no, that's true people do it. it's very often in a group of friends one person has like the 8am course and everybody feels very badly for them
1: <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> So and then to get to you, what was it? What's another thing yeah. that I think about? Yeah. Well, um, uh, one thing is about uh, the emotional ability, the the emotionality of a teenager. We as adults go, "What is the big deal?" You know, you're you're treating this minor thing that somebody said to you or they wore the same clothes as like a crime against humanity. You know, international incident. What's going on? And actually, when you study the parts, what what researchers have done is they've looked at um, the parts of your brains, especially the amygdala. Uh, a part of your brain uh, in this uh, emotional part of your brain called the limbic system that controls emotion and, and also this addiction phenomenon, reward phenomena. And one of the kinds of imaging allows you to actually see what part of the brain is sort of turning on or is metabolically active during a specific task. So in this case, what they looked at was they showed kind of concerning images and wanted to see, you know, was there a bigger response that, um, of the teenage brain than the child or the adult? Mm-hmm. And several studies have now shown that absolutely, yes, functional MRI, the signal lights up even more you know, significantly more just between 15 and 25 years of age, and the children and the adults are at lower levels for a given stimulus. So, you know, really begins to show that they're really perceiving uh, that emotional stimulus. Their brain is is reacting to it much more, and they can't they can't control that. Right. So that is helpful to know as a parent. You know that there is this in, inherent emotional ability that that is just part of growing up. I mean, it sounds like you're saying they're 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 hypersensitive naturally. That's right. So. Yes, and we need to remind that, you know, uh, because adults will look at a teenager, they'll get really annoyed, they'll transpose their own value system and their own ability to um, control their impulses onto the teenager, and it's A, it's just not going to happen. It just, their wiring is not there, and B, that reaction that you think is just so ridiculous is one that is almost... Uncontrollable, if you will. It's 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 the biology that they have. So, as parents and you know, teachers and other p- folks interacting with teenagers, we have to remember that their perception of reality is a little different from ours. Uh, their ability to control themselves and to not take a risk uh, is 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 impaired compared to an adult, and and we can't. Anger is probably not the best way to manage this. It's it's with some understanding and also to begin to be, I always say, as as we adults, last I checked. do have our frontal lobes attached, we should be giving these teenagers a frontal lobe assist. And we, you know, we can guide them and give and and sort of role model for them and work out, you know, they're very challenged when it comes to, you know, organizational, uh, you know, um, tasks like what goes before what and how to get something done most efficiently. And also anticipating a risk, and you—they are eminently teachable. So, part of approaching them is to be a little bit more explicit about those things, and I think it helps. It's—it there's there's no panacea, but I think it helps.
0: Do you feel like um, this changed your parenting? You know, if you go back to the time before you had read a lot of this literature and really explored it, and then you know after, and you you really started to absorb it and understand it. Could you detect a difference in how you yourself acted as a parent?
1: I, I do I think so I think I I really tried to I was single parenting at the time so um, I didn't wa- I couldn't afford to have alienation you know of to, of my kids mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to understand what was going on and I think I turned what could have been frustration and anger that we all can you know, some teenage behavior will elicit this in almost everybody, to more curiosity and going, okay, I, you know, there's a there's a process behind this, and I'm going to, I do have a frontal lobe, and I'm going to mute my response to this. Um, I also, you know, wanted to spend, take a positive on this and really tell them, you know, what an opportunity this window still was that you know, we would never knew it um, before this last decade or so that, that there was such a capacity to change your IQ right. in this window. What <laughs> right. can you do with that piece of information? Actually, a lot. And if they're mindful of the fact that they actually have kind of a competitive edge at this point, I think it's a very hopeful thing to tell them. Um, so I, I would share this. And, and um, I think it helped. I really do. Yeah. They learned a lot about the teenage brain is what you're saying. They did learn a lot about (laughs) the teenage brain, and they then unfortunately got to be, you know, examples I would use of themselves on themselves. But yeah,
0: Francis Jensen is author of the book *The Teenage Brain*. She's also chair of the Department of Neurology at the
1: University of Pennsylvania. Francis, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really great to talk about this.